What if the Len Bias story is about University of Maryland phenom who was the second pick of the 1986 draft who went to the Celtics and just two days later had one of the most tragic and shocking deaths in sports history? The podcast investigates how Bias's death changed the trajectory of NBA history, sparked America's cocaine panic, and made a lasting impact on the world of sports and far beyond. Check out What If the Len Bias Story on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. We're doing the intro right now, but the intro on this recording was recorded at the end of this podcast because I couldn't figure out a way to actually talk about the story, which I think is going to be a great way to introduce our guest, Josh Nyland, chef of St. Peter, fish butcher, and charcoal fish in Sydney, Australia. Um, Three years ago, I was in Margaret River. There's this giant, giant food festival out there. A lot of great chefs from Australia and from around the world get to go there. And it's like the last night. And a lot of the chefs get together and you're getting tired of having to go to all these preset dinners. You just want to eat something normal. You don't want to go to a fancy restaurant. And somehow Paul Kylie, Paul Carmichael, Kyle Javier Ashton, and a few other people were like, why don't we just figure out how to cook dinner at the flats that they had set up for us? And I was super excited to get to hang out with you because I think before the dinner, I was asking like what because we all have to cook dinners at these restaurants because people from all over the world come for this event. (laughs) And I, (laughs) Chris knows this, I was trying to find the most forgettable meal, right? Like, (laughs) how can I cook something that is good enough that people are not going to remember what the hell they just ate, but it's not going to be bad. You know, because like you want to have some time to hang, to enjoy yourself, but you still want people to have a good time. So I found my lane. We made a dinner. I couldn't even tell you what I fucking made. Uh, I know it was on the beach. I can tell you. Josh, what did he make? What did he make? Tell us what he, he made. He microwaved eggs. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is for actually paying guests. This is... Uh, oh, the yeah. microwave egg was for what we made. <laughs> for our dinner, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, I didn't get a chance to go to Josh's dinner. I wanted to see what... You know, like I wanted to go to basically this restaurant, host Josh, and he cooks this meal. And I wanted to see it, but I didn't get a chance. I remember I did like shrimp on the, the grill. I did a few other things. It was good, but I was trying to find, specifically trying to make dishes that were not going to take a lot of mise en place, yeah. not going to take a lot of time. It was going to have the biggest return for value 
something I learned. I remember a long time you ago. having that conversation with me because I told you about my mise-en-place that yeah. I just endured, <laughs> and you yeah. were just like, "You need to, you need to be forgettable, man. Like yeah. <laughs> next time you do this, don't be remembered." <laughs> so, so we we caught up with Josh, and I was like, "So, like, dude, you look like you just went seventeen rounds in boxing." And I'm like, "Man, what happened?" He's like, "Oh, you know, how many yeah. people did you feed?" Yeah, it was like 120, but the only person in the room was Pierre Kaufman. <laughs> I was, For those yeah. that don't know, one of the great chefs of all time. <laughs> and I think he was doing the the the, the pig's foot. But yeah, um, I did all this charcuterie and like I was making pate and like bread and it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was so intricate. It was so much work. I was like, oh man. I was like, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of like your vacation. Like next time, just roast some seafood. <laughs> Be cool, man. Take it, take it down a little bit. <laughs> so like we, we were like, oh man, like, what are we going to do? We don't want to get the, we don't want to go to the restaurant. So we cook dinner and we go to, what was the supermarket? I think we go to Kohl's or, or a Tesco or something like that. Yeah, You threw me your credit card and said, go and get us dinner. And so I, was, I, I went to the nearest Coles, which was like an hour's drive away. <laughs> and the whole way there, I was freaking out and writing a list in my book. And I think I wrote two pages of what I was going to do. Um, and I bought heaps of really different stuff. Like I think I bought kombu powder and like bone marrow from Coles. And <laughs> uh, yeah, you did. You did. Heaps of vegetables and. Anyway, we came back, Luke, Luke Ashton, Kylie Javier's husband and I, we were just wondering if we had enough food. And then we finally got back and we were unpacking and everybody's just pulling all this food out of, out of the back of our car. And it was, it was a very random dinner, but a very wonderful one that I won't forget. <laughs> it was hilarious. And yeah. we had to sort of divide and conquer. That's why you had to go get the food. Cause I didn't know where to go. <laughs> no. And we had to get like, these apartments ready to cook. We were actually hosting like a 20 person dinner that night. And, um, I made cauliflower with some kind of anchovy sauce. We made fried rice from pre-cooked rice. You bought basically the entire supermarket. It was hilarious because we have all of these world best chefs making food with stuff you bought from Kohl's. And I just thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen or been part of. And uh, I was watching you specifically because I was like, it, it was almost like a, we should have filmed it. It would have been a great TV show because <laughs> everybody goes off. Everybody has to make a dish and you know, you're going to be judged by all of these great chefs and people in food and you don't want to fuck this up. But I was still trying to be forgettable, right? <laughs> For me, that's not life changing. I was like, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I just want to make something good enough. That's forgettable. Clearly I already forgot what I made, but I do know I made a fried rice that was not, terrible but i remember watching you i was like oh man this guy's this guy's going after it made a spicy salad from memory yeah you made a panzanella i believe you made a panzanella <laughs> but also you you made like a piperad with peppers and i was like come on dude you're trying to show up everybody everybody well yeah you get one shot take every opportunity that you get <laughs> And that was my my first time hanging out with you. And I just was like, I, I appreciated everything that you were doing and what you did for the industry and continuing to do. And I just thought it was a blast. That was a, an amazing meal. And um, 
there was one of those those times where you just never forget and uh i never laughed so much and it was one of the best times and yeah. i got to eat your food and you didn't make any fish no <laughs> i think i put anchovy <laughs> in the panzanella but that was about it <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious man oh, so so that was my that was a, a quick intro into a story that you were like i don't know what you guys are talking about but <laughs> We're going to get right into this podcast where you will know what Josh is talking about, where we go into his upbringing, how he got into fish cooking, how he opened up his first restaurant, and a lot of the misperceptions and misunderstandings of fish in general. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of everything in this podcast, but really we wanted to extract information, clearly promote Josh's new book, his new restaurant, but get insight, this like crazy, crazy expertise he has into fish cookery. And it is clearly the number one food that most people are afraid of cooking at home. I, I don't need data. I know that is the case. And it's not only the most difficult fish to cook at home, at least perception-wise, it scares the shit out of cooks too, because fish cookery is difficult. Don't ever think that it's not. But there's a lot of unraveling we need to do. And I think Josh gets to the core of so many of the issues from sustainability to fish handling and sanitizing of the fish, so on and so forth. Um, but check out Josh Nyland's books. They're extremely informative. I mean, this guy wrote a book in Australia and it won like all the best books in America because it's written in English. It's that fucking good. He's 32 years old, but like he has the wisdom of somebody that's like 3X that age. If you want to know how to be a better cook, both professionally and certainly as a home cook, he's somebody you should follow. He has an Instagram page that I'll be honest, I don't like looking at anymore because it makes me mad. It makes me fucking mad that I can't taste it. And I'm not that good to like go that far to care about fish like he does. You know, like I'm like, oh man, makes me feel so lazy. And I, I love it. I just think he's got one of the best feeds out there. And I'm excited to have him on as a guest. Here's the podcast with Chef Josh Nyland. Excited to have our guest. Chef Josh Nyland on the podcast today. He may not like me hearing or saying this, uh, but I think Josh is one of the very best chefs in the world. And he is based out of Sydney, Australia. A young, young man. But how many children do you have? Because that's how I age years now. Is I have no idea how we're going to have a second one, but you have four kids now? I have three and a half. <laughs> There's and one half. on the way. There's one oh on the way. Oh my God. Yeah, dad life. And you're opening a restaurant. New restaurant, Charcoal Fish. Yeah, just opened two days ago, so very sleep-deprived. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, Fish Butchery in St. Peter. And Fish Butchery is like a store down from St. Peter? Yeah, about 10 doors up on the same side of the street. We've got a, a retail slash takeaway spot. So it acts as a production kitchen, basically, for now, both businesses, St. Peter and Charcoal Fish. And you have written a award-winning cookbook, the whole fish cookbook. You got another one coming out, Take One Fish. You know, I think a lot of people admire you from afar, even if they've never been to your restaurant or been to Australia, because it's very rare to find somebody that's figured out a voice, right? Finding a voice in the culinary profession is just so damn hard. 
you know, we, we have all these questions we want to get into, but that's just what I want to ask, like, first and foremost is yeah, not even what St. Pete is and everything, because I think your explanation of this will explain everything. Like, how did you find your voice as a cook? Yeah, um, I took an interest in fish in one of the earlier restaurants that I worked in, and it was because I was watching the team go across that fish station and everybody was so intense about it. Like there was a heightened sense of energy that went into fish preparation and production that that was really fascinating. It was, you know, even from the point of view of how sharp your knives had to be, uh, the fact that you had to have about three sets of gram scales and all sorts of things on your station to do your yields and approximations on fish. And, and yeah, just the added detail was really exciting. And I think to the same sentiment as pastry. And so it was very exacting. And I was working on a fish section in a, in a three-hatted kitchen here in Sydney. Um, and I became really, you know, infatuated with it. And so I asked my chef at the time, could I move on and go and find a place that I could really focus on fish? And so I went to a place called Fish Face, uh, which only did seafood. And it was a 34-seat spot. And I was really well mentored by a gentleman named Stephen Hodges. And he armed me with all of his knowledge. And uh, for anybody here in Australia, and I suppose in the States that's ever heard of Stephen Hodges, he's um, he's crazy. Like he was <laughs> so hyper-passionate to the point of aggressive passion. <laughs> like he was just a, a crazy kind of guy. And he invested a lot of energy and effort into me and my learning. And I think that was from meeting him at a really young age. I met him at a a cancer foundation event that I was both speaking at and cooking at because I had a childhood cancer as a kid. And so I won this sponsorship and he gave me a hundred dollar voucher for, for a meal at his restaurant. So that was the beginning of knowing Stephen. And so I think he felt a sense of responsibility around my learning and going on after fish face and going on to do other things. There was a penny drop where it was like, this guy has invested so much energy in my learning that if I was to do anything else but fish, it was it would have been a bit of a middle finger to that. So that was kind of how I found my niche and I just decided that there was too much of a void in the Australian market with that middle-of-the-road offering of fish. Can we talk about that? Because I find that when, when we opened up Seobo 10-plus years ago, I was just floored at the abundance of seafood. And I was shocked that so much of it never made the menus. It was like, what was the fish that was on every menu? It was like... Yeah, Mulloway or... Mulloway and Kingfish? Yeah, Hiramasa Kingfish. That was it. Hiramasa Kingfish and... uh, Mulloway and Barramundi and Snapper. Barramundi. Yeah. But over the past decade plus, I think people have realized like, oh my goodness, there is so many different kinds of species. There was almost very no one really embraced the shellfish, but like the fish to me, I was like, wait a second, this is undiscovered really. And the fish that I fell in love with early was Murray cod. And we'll we'll, we'll talk about Murray cod later. It's one of the most versatile fish of all time, but there are names of fish that are just crazy. There's crazy looking fish. (laughs) And how do you explain this to somebody that will probably never go to Australia? The cooking of fish there is how can it be similar to somebody that doesn't have access to this fish yeah uh yeah to touch on that like 
I share your sentiment in the fact that we've got such a broad diversity of fish and the standard in which it gets caught and captured and, and handled is first class. Like we, we've got some of the most strictly quoted <laughs> fisheries in the world and, and the way that like we procure our fish is direct with fishermen. Obviously we have to use the market for, for some things, but, but as you said, I think there's so much untapped in and around Australia. Uh, to compare it to other species around the world is super difficult. I mean, I, I went to the UK a couple of years ago for the book and I got a sea bass put in front of me, which was, I suppose, a little bit similar to snappers and lighter fish that we've got here, but they're also different. They don't carry the like densely firm textures of some of these fish that we have like coral trout, which is just, you know, the Ferrari of the ocean here. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> unbelievable. And then King George Whiting, you know, here in Australia is like the Rolls Royce Primo. <laughs> Just the, the, the texture of the fish is incomparable to anything else. But polarizing to that, we don't get turbot and we don't get halibut. Those kind of, you know, deep swimming, very cold watered fish of the north, we miss out on. But I'm kind of fine with that. <laughs> that's, that's okay. As people it's, who do have access to halibut, Josh, uh, you're not missing that much. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, I, 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 I'll trade you halibut any day of the week. Just get it out of my side of the hemisphere. Yeah. But there, if there, there is a flatfish. Yeah, there's John Dory down there. Yeah. And we've got beautiful flounders, like greenback flounders and things. So I really do believe we're so spoiled. And to be cornered to one side of the room eating salmon snapper and you know, barramundi and kingfish is just like banging your head against the wall. Like, I think we've just got to broaden our, our mindset. But how do we broaden our mindset when we're only exercising a muscle of a method of cookery on three fish? Like, it's one thing for me to come out and say everybody needs to eat more bonito or, or more blue mackerel. But if you don't know how to cook that, then how do you go about that? Because I think selecting the method is one of the more difficult things to do. Can I ask, because you're, you're talking about method and Dave brought up, you know, this very specific voice you have. And I, I've, I've not actually had the pleasure of eating your food in Australia. I'm somebody who followed you because, we, you know, we sort of met briefly. And then I was like, oh, this is the dude that does all the crazy <laughs> stuff with fish. He may, you, you do so many, like, you know, traditional meat preparations yeah. <laughs> with fish. I know that's an oversimplification, but can you talk about what, you know, when you say the, the technique and Dave talks about your voice, I'm oversimplifying and saying like, oh, he cooks fish like al pastor. Like what is really the philosophy that we're talking about here? Yeah, I think a lot of the methods and selections of recipe dishes and all this sort of stuff, because I'm not coming at this as like a pro fisherman and I didn't grow up. <laughs> I didn't grow up catching fish. I was half an hour away from any kind of body of water to do that. So my energy is coming mainly from a culinary point of view. Like I'm not one that could tell you vast information about depths of what fish swim at, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so, um, but speaking to the method, I look at basically the culinary repertoire of centuries worth of meat preparations and cooking methods. There's so much energy into meat and there's so little diversity in, in terms of fish. So to investigate logically how we handle, store, and process meat has been the main catalyst for a lot of the way that I've ended up doing things with fish. Um, how do I answer this the best? <laughs> it's a lot, man. It, it's so different 
that I think it's hard for anybody to understand it. And that's why I think where well, your voice is so important, even if it's from Australian people who haven't tasted it, I, you can't really articulate what you've done because it's so singular yet complex. Yeah. It immersed in it at the moment. <laughs> um, and, and I think just to try to clear up what I was saying with Chris was if I see swordfish, right? Like it's this big, dense white muscle with intramuscular fat running through it. And, you know, you can see the, mu- the concentric lines of muscle running through it. And even just the way it presents itself in that big saddle right in the middle. All I look at when I see that is a pig. And when I see <laughs> pork, then I'm like, okay, what, what have I ever done with a pig? And what's Dave ever done with a pig? Like, how do I do a bosom? with coral trout or how do I make up our store out of swordfish? How do I make a meat pie out of tuna or lasagna? And, and so that's why take one fish had to kind of be written because I felt the whole fish cookbook as much as I love it. And, and I'm very proud of it because it's my first book. There was a lot in there that was just kind of just here information, <laughs> just dump everything down. And it was exhaustive, um, the text. And so the Take One Fish needed to come along to be a little bit more joyful and, and see it a bit more more colourful uh, and, and make people really hungry for it. I mean, people need to understand Australia is wonderful, but is very provincial at times. And they don't like change. Nobody likes no. change. But Australia and how you did fish was so punk rock that I, I very much admired it. No, thanks. I, like when we opened... St. Peter, I put up a photo of myself hanging big wild fish in my cool room. So I changed my, my little cool room that I had here at St. Peter when we first moved in. It used to be a sushi train. <laughs> so there was a lot of stuff that was already here. And so I cleared the cool room out. I took two thirds of the room for all purpose storage. And then I changed one third to be its own cabinet. And then inside I put a rail along the roof and then I hung my fish in there. So they weren't touching each other. Because if they touch, like, you know, you've got to think about charcuterie and, and meat-based preparations where if anything perspires and produces moisture to the surface and that touches something else, then essentially that's just bacteria just waiting to grow. So we're, we've tried to separate everything so that no, nothing was touching. And I took a photo of myself hanging this fish up and I said, oh, we're opening soon and come and try this dry age fish. And I got, you know, 98% was this amazing feedback of, you know, wow, that's super cool. And a lot of that was hospitality, obviously. And then the 2%, there was a lot of like quiet DMs and, and all sorts of stuff saying like, this is stupid. Like, what are you doing? Hanging fish up. You can't try age your fish. And yeah, it received polarizing views in the beginning. And then when we opened fish butchery 18 months later, I, I didn't know what that was going to be. I just knew that nobody had really, well, few had ever investigated really glamorizing and really seeing fish quite differently. And the main overarching reason for doing a a retail store like that was to bring transparency to the preparation. Um, I took huge inspiration from Loon, the croissant place in Melbourne, which sounds weird, but when you walk into Loon, they've just got this big glass cube and all the girls are in there making croissants and they're all on timers and it's insane. And I just thought to walk into a fish shop where all the fish was on top of a marble counter and your whole team is preparing it and hanging it and using every single part of the fish. And then it was then just dialing it in. So by finding culinary opportunity within 95% of a fish, we were able to create 
a business that was both profitable and sustainably better. If you're thinking about opening a restaurant, you're in the industry, or really not even any the restaurant industry, any business, like this is the stuff you need to find out and learn. Is that like there are no answers? You figure it out along the way. And I think when you take this hat and you see the perspective from an owner, everything is money and everything is costing you something. And yeah. I wonder, do you think that you would have developed this idea of using everything if you were just like the sous chef uh, working <laughs> at a fish and that was like heavily financed, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, not heavily financed. I think you add that onto the last part of the conversation and then all of a sudden it becomes, oh, well, like, you know, we're going to receive all this new fish again tomorrow. So it makes it easier labor-wise if we just move on. But yeah, like you said, if if it is your place, I mean, my first fish bill that came through the door was like four and a half grand. And I was just like, <laughs> wow, that's a lot of money. I hope people come <laughs> because <laughs> my, my fridge is full. And that's where the Instagram stuff kind of happened. You know, you start taking photos of fish that I interact with a lot, like, and, and I've worked with a lot. And so you take for granted how beautiful these fish are. And it's a privileged conversation to be talking about. We're talking about a, a protein that is so fleeting and is so, you know, you look at everything that we're seeing at the moment with different documentaries being released and, and all sorts of things. It's a challenging topic that carries its own gray area that I don't feel can be well-defined by many. Uh, everybody that comes to fish butchery needs to ask the question, is this sustainable? And menu items, is this sustainable? And that's a hard, always a hard conversation to talk about. So give us a sense of what you're talking about. If I'm somebody at home who's like, what do you mean? The only edible part of a fish is the filet. Like, what are you even talking about, man? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> enlighten me, the filet boy, yeah, about what so, you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean... We all go to cooking college and we all educate ourselves with, with different uh, chefs going to TAFE here in Australia and college over in America. Uh, a lot of the conversation that we got when we were in school was basically, this is your yield, which is 45% return or 50% return. And then the rest is perceived as loss. And I think loss needs to be redefined as opportunity and opportunity in the form of the head, the collars, all the offal inside Oh, I, I think what needs to be said here is for centuries, culturally, there's so many cultures that have celebrated every single part of the fish and every single part of an animal. But what I've found most challenging here in Australia specifically is how do you texturally rework some of these other parts of the fish? Because it is extremely difficult to bring comfort and nostalgia to a fish stomach or to a fish liver or the blood or scales. And I think all of that is really difficult. And to find good humor and nostalgia in, in looking at the world of meat and building that onto fish has really been the catalyst for how to develop a matrix of how to use a whole fish. Because I feel moving forward, fish businesses really need to have that big pig over the top of their workstation which is in butcheries where it's, everything's cut up and here's the, the hindquarter and the forequarter and the head. And the same thing with a fish. We need to have a game plan for a fish when it comes in. We need to know the process. And this isn't something specifically to my very niche business. This needs to be globally considered that we need to actually have a plan for what happens to a fish and how 
suppliers of fish, fish shop owners, market space holders, they need to have the full opportunity of creating revenue out of every single part of that fish, except for obviously a couple of items which may not present overly well, like the gills or the gallbladder. So to make pate, to make, <laughs> you know, salamis and bacons and things out of, and fish mints, I think mints is extraordinary. To make tuna mints is just the best thing ever. Like mm -hmm. to use all that lateral line, that dark red muscle, and mince it down and make mapa tofu mm. is just the most delicious thing ever and far better, I think, even than pork. But it's using a part of the fish that is so methodically thrown in the bin. As a chef, you're just working and you go repetitiously through the movements that you've been told to do and it'll end up in the bin. But if you put a tray there instead, what you're looking at then is creative opportunity and a way that we can work with fish for more years to come than just filet boy. <laughs> but that that's what people want right the the misperceptions the misunderstandings of fish right freshness mm -hmm. being one of them but also what is edible right yeah. um people and i think that ranges in cultures people don't like the fish head people don't like to eat fish off the bone that's the biggest thing people don't like eating food off the bone i agree with you dave i think but the problem is is that and I'm not going to say it's lazy. I just think it's the way that it's always been done. If you give some, like, I will never put a whole fish on the bone on my menu here, hmm. like as in on the pin bone we're talking about. So the pin bone and rib bone, down at the charcoal fish that we just opened, we've got a whole Murray cod going onto the vertical spit. But what we do is we take the rib bones out, we take the pin bones out and leave it on the spine and then cook it on the vertical spit so that when it comes time to put it into a roll or put it into a salad, then the chefs that are taking it apart are kind of taking big succulent pieces of meat off the bone that have benefited from that gelatinous quality of the bone but aren't interfered with by pulling pin bones out of it. Customers aren't getting it but stuck between their teeth. It's the added detail of removing the confrontation of those things and why I did things like the rack and the chop and all those things of fish because it's exposing one bone so that you can see it and you benefit from it being there. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, 
you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. The only chef when I was younger that did anything that changed my perception of fish was Thomas Keller's French Laundry Cookbook when he had the salmon shop. And when I worked for Jonathan Benno, you know, I was so floored to actually see him take the bandsaw, make it. And I was like, oh my gosh, to get one fucking chop from the salmon took like 15 minutes, <laughs> you know? And then and you only got like two. You yeah. know, it was like, they're like, that's it. And I just yeah. marvel at the amount of work that has to go into fabricating this. And I just yeah. want people to know when you're doing the kind of food that Josh is making at his restaurant, St. Peter, charcoal fish, taking the pin bones out, this is extraordinary work. And it's craftsmanship that should be celebrated because you can eat that salmon chop in one bite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like this thing. It's like you pick up this Murray Cod gravy roll and the Murray Cod itself is like I just explained and it's cooked on the spit and we're making gravy out of the heads and all the bones and we're emulsifying the fat of the fish into it to thicken it. And it goes on this beautiful bread roll. We put the stuffing, which was inside the cavity of the fish in the roll as well. And then you eat it for $20 and it's it's two mouthfuls or three mouthfuls and I'm just like oh fuck and it was one ton we did one ton of fish this week in terms of production and so that's at the moment eight hours of labor at fish butchery so it's um the guys are getting really fast really quick but yeah it's very laborious and especially not to wash it like I mean that's the biggest conversation here it is so easy to go really fast with fish if all the taps in the kitchen are running and you've got sharp wet knives and every fillet's getting ripped off real quick whereas these fish are all dry handled wiped out like with paper towels so that it's all dry and then they're getting a hook in the tail and hung to the point of moisture loss that we're happy with which is five to six days later and then we put it on the on the grill and we're getting something that rivals pork belly like it's unbelievable well Besides that fabrication, you're also talking about, I guess the muricot is the magical, mystical animal of fish. Muricot <laughs> is a very unique fish that most Americans, that I think most of our audience are from America, like they just won't have an understanding of what this fish is. Can you describe it? Yeah. Uh, well, I hope it gets there. At one point, the company that I'm working with, Acuna, they, they had a bit of a presence in, in LA and they were starting to get their fish out into different stores. But I think COVID kind of slowed that down, but hopefully eventually you guys get to try it. But it's quite a bulky fish, like between four and five kilos, the shoulders of the fish just behind the head are really structurally big. It's a really dense, meaty fish. It's got black and slightly green spotted skin with a, a white belly. You cut into the fish and it's got so much visceral fat in the actual cavity. You can take the fat out as if you were taking a lobe of foie gras <laughs> out mm. of a bird. And we can render that fat and use it as it would be duck fat. So it's like Homer talking about the magical animal. Like it's, it's one of those fish that you can do anything with. It can carry 
marinades that can be cooked so like harshly at really high temperatures. I've done peaking Murray cod where we basically loosened the skin off the flesh and, mm. and then we blasted it at a high temp and did the maltose thing on the outside and it was delicious. But it's fatty, it's sticky. I mean, you could compare it in parts around the belly and on those beautiful wings, the fattier parts on the side to turbot because it does carry so much gelatine. But I think it's a steamable fish as well. Like it's just, <laughs> it's you can do anything, poach, steam, grill, batter. Like we're batter frying it for our fish and chips as well feels kind of naughty because like fat from the fish spits out of it as well when you eat it. So mm, yeah, good it's really God. good. Do you think it's magical because of it, where it lives? I mean, in terms of its habitat? Well, it's interesting because like you look at my other kind of favorite fish, like King George Whiting and coral trout and, you know, beautiful fish like that, that are all saltwater ocean swimming fish. And then you've got this fish, which is freshwater. And this is uh, five hours west of Sydney. And it's inland, so it's hot <laughs> and it's dry. And people, basically, the the ponds are being cut out of people's land. Like it's it's almost integrated into agriculture, but it's aquaculture. So farmers are getting you know offered uh, to basically use their irrigation to fill the ponds, uh, and then Akuna supply them with the fish, and then they're told to look after them and feed them up uh, for a period of time. So it's the type of aquaculture that isn't damaging wild stocks uh, and damaging wild environments. So it's quite unique in that sense. And the interesting thing is that Murray cod got eradicated as a wild stock years and years ago for overfishing, and that company now is restocking uh, the body of water that it used to exist in with new baby fish, basically. So it acts as both selling fish, but also regenerating lost stock. And they also have harnessed the fish up off the bottom of the, the pond itself. So it doesn't burrow itself into the mud because when Murray cod burrows itself into the, the bottom of the water that it's in, then it'll pick up something called geosmin and it'll make the fish really muddy and tainted and it carries a dirty characteristic, which everybody feels quite, you know, they've eaten Murray cod once before and they said it was dirty and so they won't go back to it. And that's why everybody was kind of shocked when I picked Murray cod as the one fish that I was going to use. But Akuna keeps them in nets above the water so they stay really sweet and the flesh is super white and beautiful. I remember it was Clayton or Greeno, they were breaking it down and they cooked it and I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, I would never have guessed it was a freshwater fish. You know, it's like at the very best, I was like, this has to be brackish water. I was like, no, I was like, there's no way. There's no yeah. way, but Australia is hmm. a strange place. Where it is. <laughs> so where does that, where does, so that's, that's an interesting thing, right? Like uh, what, you, what you just said, Josh, uh, like first impressions of a fish often shape people forever. It seems like yeah. people have one bad experience with fish. Like my dad, choked on fish bones one time when he's a kid and to this day like has trouble eating fish. Where do you both think the problem begins or or can be solved when it comes to like in Australia, everybody just eats barramundi. In America, everybody just eats salmon. Like where does that start and like what do we do better? Yeah, I think Dave kind of touched on it a little bit where Australians don't love a lot of change. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, in particular to talk I don't know, there's been a few scenarios where there's a sense of, I don't know, not privilege, but there is that nostalgic aspect to it where we've had customers come in and go, oh, what, what should we have tonight as a table of four or five or something? 
And then we go, oh, the King George Whiting's amazing. It's a great fish. You should try that. And then somebody will cut off the waiter and sort of say, oh, yeah, I grew up in Port Lincoln. Like I I know King George Whiting. I know what it is. We used to have it for sandwiches as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, great. That's great. But I, for me personally, I grew up eating salmon out of a tin and tuna mm-hmm. out of a tin. And I never got to experience what a fish kind of was until I caught a fish in the river with my mom. And then I'd watch her, you know, gut it under a garden tap outside and then bring it in and then take the fillets off, not pin bone it, dust it in flour, then pan fry it. And then we'd eat it whilst picking bones out of, you know, <laughs> our mouth. And that, that was my interactions with fish. But for the complete opposite side of things, people that grow up spoiled, living coastally, getting to experience how to, how to eat fish and how to, you know, build it into their diets. That's a whole nother conversation. So I think, how do we change it? <laughs> I think we need to arm ourselves with a better vocabulary when we go into stores. We need to be asking, you know, what would you be cooking tonight? And can you please do the work for me rather than being confronted with going home with a whole fish and what do I do with it and how do I deal with it? Um, because there's nothing in people's minds at the moment where if you bought a fish in the morning, you're definitely eating it for dinner. You would never let it sit in your fridge another day. You would never really have leftovers of fish at the end of a meal. It's a very clean transaction. You buy it, you eat it, it's gone, and then you move on. It's seen more as like a you must do it in the week because it's good for you rather than being joyous (laughs) and celebratory, which it should be. But I think for reasons of bones, of sliminess, of confrontation, of walking into a really cold, like wet store that has a smell, I think a lot of those things are super difficult to get over the fact of. So. I don't know how you think about it, Dave. <laughs> like that's um Well, I mean, I think this is a larger conversation that's not just limited to fish. I feel like we sanitized where food comes from to the point where people just don't want to know that it died. <laughs> fish or yeah. meat died. And they don't want to know. And Personally, I think we're too far gone. I just think people don't want to know. They don't want to see the head. They don't want to see the eye. Yeah. I just have a hard time seeing us come full circle um, until people start catching it themselves and doing it themselves. To answer that then, I feel like the energy shouldn't be going into how do we get the customers or how do, how do we get our guests to want to eat? What, <laughs> like we can't force feed them to eat the things that they don't feel comfortable in. So what needs to happen is the education system for somebody that processes and handles seafood needs to be improved. So, you know, at the point of a fish coming in, take the heads off, take the collars off and take off the gnarly bits and the offal and everything. And then that goes into production for value added items as a meat butcher would. Like I remember walking into butcheries with my mom when I was a kid and she would walk in and go, Hey Tom, what are we having for dinner? And then he'd be like, Oh, we just made sausages. And it's like, great. We'll, we'll take a dozen sausages. And then, but Josh, this is the difference from America and for, I mean, maybe because of the British influence, there are real (laughs) butchers in Melbourne, in in Sydney. Like you can still go get these things. And yes, there are, they're here in America, but there are similarities, but this is one thing that is certainly different. And I totally agree with you. How we present things is going to matter. Education matters. But what I wanted to ask you is this, for somebody that goes to a Coles or a Woolworths, and that's like the supermarkets, the popular supermarkets in Australia, or they come to like a Whole Foods or a Ralph's here in America, giant supermarket, and they go to the fish aisle and they see everything 
filleted. Like I, I'm not going to buy that, but no. a lot of people do because I don't no idea where it's from. A lot of it's mislabeled that it's fresh, but it was frozen. A lot of it's in this gloopy, terrible marinade to mask, you know, like if you don't age fish properly, it will go bad. But if you age it properly, you can control the flavor. There's a lot of nuance in it. And I personally don't buy fish from supermarkets because I see it. And my whole take on fresh fish is there's like, oh, you check the gills, you could die. Like if you have to even question, is it fresh? It's not fresh. It didn't like just die. (laughs) You will see it. It's like self-evident. And all the different tricks to make fish look fresh, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And how do you get people? It, and it's it's a lot of it's culture. If you go to Italy, if you go to Turkey, you see fresh fish, and mm. it's part of the culture. It's not part of American culture, and it's not part of Australian culture. So, like, how do you tell somebody to go to the store, buy this fish? What should they buy? Yeah, <laughs> tough one. Because like I said, this is a privileged conversation where I get to talk about the great fishermen that I work with and how they just Ikijime spiked this amazing fish and I got it hours later. And then I get to do my work and I get to be creative. And and those in the five kilometer radius around Paddington get to experience that. And until I open fish butcheries all around the world, then then that'll be tricky. But I don't know. It's one of those things where if you want to buy a better quality cut of meat or a better quality cut of fish or organic vegetables, then go and specifically purchase those fish in places that care um, and do it better. Because I mean, pulling plastic back on two fillets of salmon, there's no romance to that. But then, you know, the mom or the dad with three kids waiting for food, they need an option. They can't spend $45 on two pieces of something that's been ethically sustainably detail specked out for them they need dinner ready now and so that's that's a really challenging conversation and i think the methods that i'm doing and the books that i'm writing i'm hoping that fishmongers and store owners are reading um, so that they can see the opportunities that i'm seeing so i'm hoping that one day you can buy tuna patties <laughs> in a in a store like coles or a woolworths or a whole foods so that you can go home and instead of having greasy hamburgers you can have a tuna hamburger or you know lasagnas with the mints and and all these great things um but i think i don't know you look at fergus and what he did for the world of meat at st john 25 years ago he was telling everybody that we all need to think about the whole animal a bit closer so that we waste a little bit less and those parts are the best parts of the animal so i feel like i'm you know five years into the same cause because I want people to come and have a great experience in any of my places, but the overarching purpose to what I do is to create effect and change in this space. But I mean, I'm 32 and I'm trying (laughs) really hard. (laughs) You're doing an amazing job. God bless you. (laughs) And I've told you as much, I I think you just keep your head down and and, and all this change is going to happen, man, whether you realize it or not. But when it comes to the consumer-facing stuff, do you feel that there's a correlation with the misinformation, the marketing that is trying to control what people eat, how fish is marketed in supermarkets? Is there a correlation with people being afraid to cook fish at home? Absolutely. Like, how, how do you have any confidence to generate an excellent outcome when you're working with a fish that's just come out from underneath the tap? Like, how do you produce similar degrees of cooking to a restaurant standard 
at home when you're kind of picking out the fillet that was sitting on top uh, of the one that was sitting. So I don't know. I don't get the whole market thing, right? Like fish comes in and the organs are ripped out. They're thrown in the bin. The heads usually go into a bucket and sold for the lowest common denominator, usually well past the point of use by. And then it's then stacked up. Fillets are stacked up on top of ice. And how, how can the top fillet be the same temperature as the bottom fillet? And just the feeling of how cold it is and wet on the floor and the smell, the smell of ammonia is the most off-putting thing when it comes to fish. And still walking into the fish butchery for the first time, you get customers saying, what's your least fishy fish? And what they're referring to is, is just that ammonia that's starting to break down the fish. Um, and the ways to alleviate ammonia is through reducing the speed in which that trimethylamine oxide, which creates ammonia, if you can control that process and slow it down, then you will never actually get a fish that spoils to the point of that horrible fish smell. You'll get something that rancidifies because there's too much fat present because you've reduced the moisture too much through the aging period. And I know this is getting all geeky and stuff, but a fish that is wet is a fish that you'll have to get rid of in two to three days, or at least start ramping the lemon juice up on. I mean, the reason why we've the reason why we've got a culinary repertoire of fish that's saturated with acidic ingredients is because acidic compounds breaks down ammonia, and that's how we can get it to the table on day four or day five. I mean, that's incredible. I know that there's kitchens globally that purchase their fish every two days or every day, even like that repetitious nature of purchasing is removing more fish out of the water and creating more issues. Whereas if we can know that we've got the ability of 12 days storage or 10 days storage as a chef in a business, then that means one less fish coming out of the water. And furthermore, if we're able to take 90% from a fish, not 45, then that's the two yields coming out of one single fish. And that's what's so important. And it's our job as a chef to bring desirability to the whole product. It's not flipping lids off caviar. Like we have to be able to make everything desirable in a, in a Western context. And I'm speaking Western context because you go to Japan, you eat a bowl of beautiful soup with, you know, fish milt in there. It's texturally complicated for me, but it's desirable by them because they've, they've been raised to appreciate those textures. But in Australia, we want things crispy and salty and, you know, <laughs> Seneca. And um, not here. We're we're just we're great at all sorts of textures and flavors and bitterness. <laughs> well, we're Josh, I think it's I think it's important to note, right, from a Western perspective, because having lived in Asia, you know, particularly in Japan, mm. this is not what people ask for. People actually look and think about a fishy fish smell as actually desirable because it's, they're not thinking about it as ammoniated. They're thinking about the oil in the fish. And they're actually knowledgeable about, oh, this is going to be desirable now because they've been feeding here in this part of, you know, yeah. the waters. And how can we get to a place where people desire the fish oil? And I think mm. they're, they've misconstrued, as you say, ammoniated fish with fish oil. Yeah. Which is delicious, which is why my benchmark is mackerel. Mackerel is my, one of my favorite fish. I love There's all no the oily white fish. Right. If Americans will actually prefer, say, a mackerel, a blue mackerel, a Spanish mackerel, if I can envision that day, what would have to happen for that to happen? You know what I mean? Like, I, I just have a hard yeah. time seeing that. I think it could get there if it was saturated with 
sauce and flavors and things, but to serve a nude mackerel, um, I think that's, that's a big hurdle to jump. Like, I think that would summarize a lot of people's worst fears here in Australia, um, to, <laughs> to <laughs> kind of saddle up for a barbecued mackerel on the bone. That's like a nightmare for so many people. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, so I know we did a version of this a little bit throughout this show, but I would love if we could just, if we can consolidate right now, Josh Nyland's five biggest Western playboy misconceptions about fish cookery. Can we do one through five? Sure. And I'll be really tight <laughs> with my hands. No, um, don't wash your fish. Don't wash your fish, like period. And again, this is... Like I'm working with great fish, obviously where, and I mean, we work with toothbrushes, right? Like we, we get like all the blood out of the cavity because the blood that sits around the bone is kind of what it'll spoil the fish really quickly. So you really do need to manage getting all of that impurity out if the ambition then is to hold it for time after, but to fill it, sorry, number two, <laughs> you can ask your fishmonger or store that you're going to to scale a fish for you and gut a fish for you, but leave the fish unwashed and untreated basically. So get them to scale it, gut it, and then wrap it up for you. When you get home, just get a piece of paper towel and wipe it off. And then that way then you're starting with something exceedingly better than what mm. you may have got from the floor of the shop itself. So that's super important. Number three, be loyal to your fish shop that you go to and that you trust, but don't be submissive. So you need, <laughs> like you need this to. This is the greatest top five list of all time. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. What did you just say? Be loyal, but not submissive. I gotta get that tattooed, Dave. That's so good. I got it on my neck. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, it's, um, I think it's important because you got to keep turning up. You got to support that business. If, if you aren't going to the supermarket to peel back the plastic on fish, and you're going specifically to buy your fish, have the conversation. What are we having tonight? What would you have? How would you want it cooked? Like, I mean, being in the fish business is waking up at two in the morning and finding the best product. And if you find somebody really passionate about what they're doing and where they're getting their fish from, then ask the question. And then once you develop that relationship out of, you know, loyalty, then you can ask them to do certain tasks for you that you don't want to execute at home yourself, which will alleviate some of the stress and burden of that task. So the next one, I suppose, is instead of buying, this, <laughs> this one's really good. Like instead of buying, if you're feeding five people or four people, don't ask for four fillets. Like <laughs> ask for one big fillet, cook that fish as a big piece, and then slice it into four after. Like you're going to have a better time with it. You're not going to be juggling four little fillets in a pan, like falling over and just making it a mess. So by cooking one big block, the moisture retention will be better. The surface area of the skin getting nice and crisp will be better. And it'll aesthetically be more pleasing to everybody sitting at the table when you walk over this beautiful big slab of fish. Um, lastly, <laughs> oh, what are we talking about? <laughs> lastly, I suppose see opportunity where it's, not currently being seen. Like, I mean, if you've got, if you do buy your whole fish, 
have a go at doing something different. Think about a meat-based cookery method. Think about a marinade that you enjoyed once having on a piece of chicken, like jerk chicken. We've done so many different types of jerk fish. It's delicious. I mean, even tikka, like tikka masala, like do it with fish, tagine. Um, all these different meat-based preparations can be so far context removed. What What about uh, lemon caper butter? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still a place for that. <laughs> Maybe on the day five salmon that's under plastic. That'd be good. <laughs> Wait, you should just put that on the menu. This is five day salmon. <laughs> just see if you can get people to order it. No, I I think, you know, don't don't rule out the opportunities seen within meat-based preparations within the ideas of fish. Like don't always lean on braised fennel or tomato compote and lemon and capers and things. Like there's a world of opportunity. I think you're overestimating the audience here. Braised fennel, tomato <laughs> compote. These things are not big. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ambitious. We're reaching yeah. for that. We're reaching yeah, these are that. not the joys you're looking for. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, can I can I ask one one thing? Because I, as a home cook now, mm-hmm. trying to feed a family, I don't get access to my restaurant's produce now. And just because, like, I could get superior ingredients all the time, but it's like, it's just not pragmatic, especially when you're having to cook a lot of different meals. And I think there's a big difference between professional cookery and home cooking. And I'm sure that you sort of merge some of those things in your household. But Mm. I find myself, you know, sometimes I'll get the nice piece of fish occasionally. But oftentimes I'm like, I'm just going to buy something frozen, not because I know it's good. I know what the floor is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll take a nice piece of frozen. It's already filleted, whatever. And it's never going to blow my hair back. But like, is frozen are cooking, fish... It, are you cooking it nude or are you using it as like a vehicle fish? There's a lot of different ways I'm cooking it. But I mean, a, a lot of times I'm cooking in a flavorful liquid in the microwave, you know? And by no way am I cooking this naked. By no means am I trying to like highlight the fish in and of itself. The nuances. <laughs> <laughs> But like it gets the job done and 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 people are like, why would you do that? It's like when you can buy something fresh, it's like, well, I would rather buy this because look at that piece of fresh fish. It looks like shit. <laughs> I have no idea what the provenance is. I have no idea. I have no idea how it was handled. Mm. Like if you're going to do something, you do it well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not celebrating how this frozen fish is, but like at least I know the floor and mm. that's why I'll mm. buy it. So it's a protein selection. Yeah. yeah. But what do you think, Josh? Like, given the choice between questionable stack of fillets in a bed of ice ammoniating in the in the shelf. I'll take a frozen or, any day of the week. Yeah. There you like, go. Outside of that, like, I mean, if you've got a well-packaged, well-branded in the sense that it's from X and it was frozen then, and, you know, I would take that option over a pile of wet mess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will also say I was at an uh, uh, Asian supermarket recently, um, and they had beautiful mackerel, but, like, not really. It was better than you'd find <laughs> elsewhere. And I looked at it, and I was like, I'm going to buy the salted mackerel, hmm. right? It's it's preserved. It looks fresh. It's filleted, but it's salted, and I know, you know, it's definitely going to have a flavor of that dried fishiness, but still sort of fresh yeah. that's going to alienate 99% of the people, but, like, I've grown up with that flavor. I can understand why a lot of people would like, I don't want to eat that, but I know that 
I could potentially find a better piece of mackerel out in the Los Angeles area, but it's not worth it for me when I know the floor on this piece of fish. And that's what I choose oftentimes. Yeah. And you know how to cook it and how to, how to get the best possible outcome out of that scenario. So, so it's going to be super delicious. It's going to stink my house to, to, <laughs> to no end tonight, but you know what? I'm looking forward to eating it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the conversation about how to shop for fish <laughs> is a question that continues to come back to me. And I suppose one day I'll, I'll really <laughs> put myself into that headspace and, and be that person at the moment, like spoiled to be able to take home beautiful fish to feed my kids um, and to feed my wife. And so to work on a barbecue on a grill at home is just a really wonderful thing to do to cook on like an open grill because flavor wise, it's insane. The bones are getting like, I'm taking out all the bones. So the kids have a great time with it, obviously. But I mean, fish is just a wonderful protein that takes flavor really well, like high amounts of gelatin and and fat. And, you know, in, in some cases, obviously, but to not be fearful of messing it up. Like, I think we've all been trained to be like fish needs to be cooked within such a tight degree of cooking, like seconds either side, and it'll be all wrong. And I think a lot of that pressures the the person cooking it at home with, okay, is it ready? Is it ready? Is it ready? Okay. Now it's dry. And <laughs> I think <laughs> like, um, people just need to relax a little bit. Like it's, you, you kind of need to just see it as a, you know, chicken breast or a, or, or a cut of meat, like just, you know, everybody can cook a sausage or, or like grill a chicken thigh fillet. So, I mean, I think we just need to calm down and see it as another protein that we should be having a good time with rather than making up a mess in our minds. Amen. Well, I mean, for those that unfortunately because of COVID, it's going to be hard for people to visit charcoal fish or, but you can get your book if you haven't had the first one, when's the second book coming out? I said, Take One Fish, I think, came out in the States on the 31st of August. So should be with you guys now. So that's good. I'm doing a chat with um, Now Serving in LA on Monday. What month is it? What month? I don't know. September? I think September. Holy shit. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, the book, Take Take One Fish is out. And yeah, the whole fish has been out for a little while. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm the same. I, I honestly, I've been... Th- I know I look at the calendar, but I still in my mind think we're in August. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Maybe it's because my son's being born this month and I'm just not ready. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Chris, what do you think, man? Talking to Josh. <laughs> uh, he said things about fish that I would seriously consider having tattooed in my body. That dude is just a, a wellspring of information. What was that line? What was that line? Um, he was like, be loyal to your fishmonger, but not submissive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so badass. Very, very few people like him. And I'm just so happy he exists. And, and anybody that can do what he's doing, you just have to marvel and applaud. And I just think so many great things are going to go his way. And, and uh, he said one thing I was trying to find a comp to for not washing fish. And, you know, that might seem crazy. I know uh, a couple podcasts ago or... Three months ago, we talked about not rinsing your mouth out after you brush your teeth, how (laughs) difficult that is. It may not seem feasible for a lot of home cooks because fish will already be on ice and washed down. And a lot of people just don't have the capability to do what Josh is doing. But I think that just think about it. For a lot of people that buy, for cooks too, and home cooks, 
I think in terms of buying, say, sea scallops over the past 10 years, people will have learned there's dry sea scallops. Buy dry sea scallops because you don't want it sitting in water. Like, that's not so different. And clearly, there's other chemical reactions with expediting the creation of ammonia. But the whole idea is you don't want to wash away certain things on a fish or seafood. And keeping things dry is maybe the better, better way. And I think of all the things that he spoke about, there's many, many nuggets. That's the one I think that's going to like shock people the most. It's not even the dry aging fish. I think that is actually the hardest thing for people to understand. Even dry aging meat is difficult, but people are consuming dry aged fish already at sushi restaurants. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. But storing your fish dry, that is truly a head scratcher for a lot of people, including professional chefs. And uh, I think we're going to have to dive deeper into that because it's pretty remarkable that he does that. So, five stars. Five stars. <laughs> yeah, you all know what that means. Five stars. But. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.